Hello, and thank you again for joining us online for worship. Before we begin, I'd like to ask you to take a moment and pray with me. Uh, Parents, if you're watching with your children, you may want to fast forward a couple of minutes because I'm going to describe what happened in Minnesota this past week. And so for you, uh, if you're watching on YouTube Premiere, uh, you may have to just pause for a couple of minutes and then and resume that. Uh, and you can just look for the Bible verses to start going back up on the screen and you'll know that uh, we've, we've gone through this section of the sermon. Um, let me give you a second to, to do that and make that adjustment. Once again this week, our news feeds were filled with images and videos of a black man killed in a horrific manner by law enforcement. His name was George Floyd, and he died in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in broad daylight. And as I watched the video of a white officer pinning a handcuffed man down to the ground, his knee on his neck for eight minutes, suffocating him, ignoring his his agreement to comply, ignoring his pleas for help, saying, I can't breathe, I was terrified to see the face of an Asian officer assisting this white officer. This Asian officer with his back turned to everything and keeping everyone else at bay. And I kept thinking, man, do something. Say something, intervene, get your partner off of him. But none of that happened. And now George Floyd is dead If he committed a crime, he deserved to be tried, to have due process afforded to him. But he shouldn't have died, not like that. And as our black community is is grieving and wounded again, I want to call us as a predominantly Asian American community, as, as one part in the greater universal body of Jesus Christ uh, to grieve alongside our black brothers and sisters to remember that that they are bearers of the image of God and that we and that we should stand alongside them uh, in humanity in compassion and in love I also want us to pray for our local law enforcement I've been praying for and reaching out to my friends and our members who faithfully, sacrificially, and courageously serve and protect us. There are countless men and women who do so much for the safety of our local communities, and they deserve to be honored. They deserve to, um, to be respected and regarded. They do not deserve to be vilified for wearing a badge. It must be such a difficult time to be an officer uh, in law enforcement uh, during this time and in this age. And I want us to be in prayer and thought for them as well. Church prayer is not the only thing we are called to do as Christians. And in this season, would you consider not just tweeting, reposting, and and clicking on articles online, but would you consider consider personally reaching out to someone that you know to someone that you are in relation with in our black community. Maybe it's a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a classmate. But would you simply reach out to them 
and let them know that you are grieving alongside them, that you are standing in solidarity and support with them. That would be so meaningful and so powerful. As, um, as this coronavirus pandemic was beginning and we were seeing many reports and articles and, and in, uh, examples of, of Asians in America being targeted, uh, being uh, assaulted because of fear due to coronavirus. Um, I had a white friend uh, reach out to me, a high school friend from Atlanta, Georgia, reach out to me and just let me know that, that he was grieved by what was going on and that he was standing in solidarity and support with me and our Asian community. And uh, it was incredibly powerful. It was incredibly personal and humanizing. And I believe that that is one way we can do even more than pray and be a beautiful, powerful witness during this time. But prayer is the first and foremost thing that we should do. It is the most important work of the Christian as we intercede for this broken and hurting world. And so church, I want to invite us to look to God in the midst of our pain and anger. Would we look to God for help and change? Let's look to him for hope and justice and to lead us in this prayer. Would you pray the prayer that Jesus taught us in the Gospel of Matthew? Would you pray the Lord's Prayer with me and for our country? Let's begin. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining me in that moment. We're continuing in our series through the parables of Jesus, and today we're looking at another well-known parable, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collectors. So if you have your Bibles, would you please turn to our passage for today, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. I'll be reading from the ESV, and may God bless the reading of his holy and matchless word. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. The word of the Lord. Now, one thing that many of Jesus' parables had was shock value. They were shocking. They were stunning. 
to the original audience, the stories had familiar characters, familiar, um, familiar articles, elements like farming and fig trees. But the conclusions were radical. They were completely unexpected. Jesus was no ordinary storyteller. And just as the kingdom of God is a paradoxical kingdom, where the first are last and the last are first, many of Jesus's parables reflect this paradox. But we as modern readers, we, we often miss out on, on these surprises, on the shock value and the power of Jesus's parables. When we see a Pharisee as a character in the story, we already think, we already assume and jump to the conclusion that the Pharisee is the bad guy. The Pharisee is a self-righteous hypocrite. The Pharisee is a whitewashed tomb. We already get to that conclusion. And then when we see a tax collector or a prostitute or a sinner in the story, we already know that he or she is going to be the recipient of grace. That he or she is going to turn out to be the one that, that Jesus loves and approves of. But the original audience of Jesus, they didn't think this way. They didn't listen with these ears. And so what I need to do right now is to try and level set for us, level set for us, and help us understand what Jesus' audience heard when he told this parable. To the Jews, the Pharisees were seen as the most godly and rigorous followers of the Torah. They were highly respected, and they were absolutely committed to the spiritual renewal of Israel through the law. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Paul the apostle was a former Pharisee. And so the way that the Jewish community regarded Pharisees would be similar to the way that we as Christians would regard our, our theological leaders, our theological giants today. People like Ravi Zacharias or Tim Keller or John Piper, people that we esteem in our church. And now I'm not calling those men Pharisees, but imagine if I did. Imagine if Jesus rejected those men and he called those men heresies. That would be shocking. That would be completely disorienting for us. I would have to get rid of so many of my books off of my shelves because these heroes, these people that I followed and respected would then be denounced by Jesus Christ. Once again, that's not in play, just shock value. And to a first century Jew, tax collectors, they were the scum of society. Tax collectors were Jewish men who worked for the Roman government. They were literally selling out their own people. They collected taxes on Rome's behalf and they made all of their money by charging more than what was actually owed. This is why we get a tax return, okay? When we pay too much, when the government collects too much, we get our money back. And if you get a tax return every year, it is awesome. It's celebratory. It's beautiful. But imagine if the IRS agents pocketed everyone's tax return. Imagine if they pocketed your tax return. Then we'd really dislike them. I mean, we already, you know, get anxious around the, even the idea of IRS agents. But if we knew that they were pocketing our tax returns. We would truly despise them. So if a Jewish person owed $100 to Rome, a tax collector would charge $150 and pocket the difference. They stole from their own people. They were hated 
and considered absolute backstabbers. Tax collectors were considered such dishonest people that their testimony was inadmissible in Jewish court. Okay? Their word meant nothing. Their truth meant nothing. So who is someone today in our society that you would never trust? Who is someone that you would judge and someone that you would avoid at all costs? Who is someone that you would never befriend, never hire, never invite into your house or allow to be around your own children? And if we're honest, there's, there's a lot of people we would put in this category. Maybe it's an ex-convict, right? a convicted felon whose name you found on Megan's Law. How would you react to that person? How would you treat them? How would you regard them? Maybe it's a homosexual or a transgender person and you find out that they are teaching your children or that they are applying for work at your job. Maybe nationality is your trigger and you're just a Korean who despises all Japanese people because of what they did historically in colonizing us. Maybe for you, your trigger is race and politics and you would refuse to befriend anyone, any white man wearing a MAGA hat. And yet, Jesus has shocking words of grace towards the very people that we would refuse, towards the very people that we would judge and despise as the scum of our community. So we need to think Pharisees good, tax collectors bad. We need to think Pharisees highly esteemed and regarded and tax collectors despised, bad, absolute lowlifes to receive the full force of this parable. And once we've level set with the original context, then we need to ask, who is Jesus talking to? And unlike most of the parables where he's speaking to his disciples, in this parable here in Luke 18, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees those who trusted in themselves as righteous, those who treated others with contempt. And this parable is a loving warning towards the Pharisees who are self-righteous and judgmental. It's a loving warning and rebuke to these people that Jesus wanted to reach with love and mercy. And then we need to ask, well, what is Jesus talking about? What is he actually trying to get at through this parable? Many people think that Jesus is talking about prayer. How do we talk to God, right? How do we cry out to him? What words does God accept? But he's actually talking about much more than prayer. He's talking about salvation. Specifically, he's talking about justification. And this is why at the end of this parable, he concludes one man went home justified. One man went home justified. John Calvin wrote that justification is the main hinge on which religion turns. Martin Luther wrote that justification is the chief article of Christian theology. Simply put, justification answers the question, how are we made right with God? How do we get right with God? To be justified means that we are forgiven that we are declared righteous and innocent before our holy God. 
And in order for us to be accepted by God, if we want to be embraced by him, if we want to be his sons and daughters, if we want to be adopted at his children, as his children, we must first be justified before him. Brothers and sisters, hear this. As sinners before a holy God, justification is our greatest need and adoption our greatest benefit. Justification is our greatest need and adoption is our greatest gift. Friends, just think about that. To be embraced and accepted as God's sons and daughters, it is the greatest blessing of salvation. But before that adoption can happen, we need to be made right with him. We need to be justified. If you and I are are standing trial with with, with an eternal death sentence on the line, What we need more than anything else, what we need more than anything else is a declaration of innocence. That is what we need. We need desperately a not guilty verdict. We don't need anything else in that situation. We don't need money in the bank. We don't need fame, fortune, or success. We don't need power or health. We need innocence when eternal life or eternal death is on the line. And Jesus, in this parable, he teaches us how to get that. He teaches us how to receive it. So let's dive in. Let's start with the self-righteous Pharisee. In verse 11, we read, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This man begins with God, but then he only talks about himself. Did you notice that? Did you hear that? And although he's in the presence of God, his only concern is his performance compared to others. His righteousness relative to others. And compared to others, he is excelling. He's absolutely excelling. Jews were only required to fast once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was a 24-hour fast, and that was the only required fast. But this Pharisee fasted twice a week. Jews were required to tithe, but they would tithe the the first fruits of their flock. They would tithe uh, basic items like grain and oil, but they didn't have to tithe every little thing that they had. But this Pharisee tithed everything. It's like someone saying that, hey, I tithe pre-tax and I tithe my tax return and I tithe every bonus and I tithe part of every Christmas, birthday, anniversary, whatever type of gift that I get, I tithe it all. And if someone told that to us, we'd be like, good for you. You know, you are, you're the man, right? Have you ever thought like this? Have you ever found comfort in the assurance that you're not as bad as other people? That you're actually doing better than them? Serving more, doing more, giving more. And maybe you've even thought to yourself, man, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not like that person with their problems, their addictions, their sins. And that feeling made you feel better 
about yourself. Married couples sometimes think like this. We think at least our marriage isn't as dysfunctional as that couple. At least we don't fight that much. At least our kids aren't as rebellious as those kids. And these thoughts, these feelings, they make us think that we're superior. They give us this guise of superiority. Brothers and sisters, we are guilty of using relative performance indicators to justify ourselves, to convince ourselves that we are okay, that we are making good decisions, that we're living well, and that we are on the right track. So many of us use our performance to justify ourselves. And friends, if we don't learn to fix our eyes on God, and if we don't learn to stop living out of relative righteousness, comparing ourselves to others, one of two things will happen to us. Actually, probably both things will happen to us. We'll either become puffed up by our own pride and superiority, or we're going to be crushed by our own inferiority, which is evident in your life today. If there's one thing that that too many of us are doing too often, it's just scrolling through social media, right? Particularly Instagram and Instagram stories. You see what your friends are doing all throughout the day. And as you've seen people's stories, their, their updates, their status updates, their pictures, how has your heart responded? Is your heart filled with feelings of pride and superiority? I can't believe they're doing that. I can't believe they're living like that. Me and my family, right? Me and, 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 and my faithfulness, I'm not doing that. Or is your heart captive to jealousy and infer- inferiority? All right, how, how have you been responding to the, like the visual and, and video lives, the captured lives of others during this pandemic? Brothers and sisters, we must continue, right? We must continue and always fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. If we continue to focus our performance on our performance, if we continue to focus on our relative righteousness to others, we will never be justified before God. We will never know what it means to be fully forgiven by the death of another. We will never know what it means to experience the rest that God offers us in the finished work of Jesus. And so Jesus continues his parable and he now describes the unrighteous tax collector. In verse 13, we read, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee stood boldly to say his prayer the tax collector could hardly stand at all. The Pharisee had compared himself to others, but the tax collector is only comparing himself to God. The tax collector knows that he has lived dishonestly. He knows that he has broken the uh, the laws and commands of God. And he is so filled with guilt that he stands far away from the altar and he can't even lift up his eyes to the heavens. 
he beats his chest and he says just seven words. Seven words of brutal honesty. Seven words of a broken heart. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And every commentator notes that in the Greek, it's not even a sinner. It's the sinner. It's the sinner. He is identifying himself as the worst of the worst. He's saying, God, what everyone else is saying about me, it is true. What that Pharisee says about me, it is true. What my family says about me, it is true. I am the sinner, the chief of sinners. In those seven words, there is no self-justification. There's no excuses. There's no looking for someone else to compare himself to so that he can step on them and lift himself up. There's only confession. The tax collector brings to God a broken and contrite heart. The tax collector's prayer reminds us of Psalm 51, the Psalm of David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and after he had murdered his friend Uriah the Hittite. And David, King David, when he realizes his sin, he cries out, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Friends, if God could forgive an adulterer and a murderer, perhaps he can forgive sinners like us. That was the tax collector's prayer. That was the tax collector's cry. He wasn't saying, at least I'm not an adulterer. At least I'm not a murderer. No, it's if God can forgive, if God can show such great a mercy to a murderer and an adulterer, then surely there's hope for someone like me. There's hope for someone like you. Friends, have you experienced something like this? When you've come to church with such a sense of guilt and brokenness that you can't sing any of the words to any of the songs. When you come into church and, and you don't want to stand, you really don't want to stand, but you do anyways because you don't want to draw more attention to yourself. So though you'd rather sit and be silent, be by yourself, you, you do something to conform because you don't want any more attention. You don't want people asking questions. You definitely don't want to sit in the front row on those Sundays. You're going right back to the right, uh, back right corner, no matter what an usher tells you. And on those Sundays and in those moments, even lifting your head is exhausting and tiring. And you just look down at the ground the entire service. I've been there. I believe most of us have been there. When we found the strength to at least come to church, but we have nothing left to meet God, to worship God, 
and to seek him. And if this is you today, Jesus has just seven words for you to pray. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what's powerful about this prayer is that it appeals both to the mercy of God and it acknowledges the truth of who we are. Jesus knows that words have power. And here we have to remember that this is a story. It's a parable. It's not a true life event. So Jesus has intentionally selected every word, every description, every detail for this tax collector's prayer. And so now for us, mercy is a common word in the church. It's always paired with grace. We, we sing about God's grace and mercy. We pray about God's grace and mercy, right? It's absolutely common. And in the New Testament, the common and regular word for mercy is eleos, eleos, which also means compassion, right? And so in those ways, we're talking about God's compassion towards his people. God being favorable and kind and gracious and generous towards his people. But here in the tax collector's prayer, God, Jesus uses a unique and different word for mercy. He uses hilaskomai, hilaskomai for mercy. It's a highly specialized word that only occurs, it only occurs in one other place in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17. And Hebrews 2.17 reads like this. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become merciful and faithful, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. When Jesus is describing the mercy of God, he isn't talking about kindness or compassion. He isn't talking about God just looking past our sins or God just loving us unconditionally. Jesus is talking about atonement. He's talking about propitiation, which means wrath-bearing substitute. He's talking about making things right between a sinner and a holy God. He's referring back to the mercy seat sitting on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. And upon the mercy seat, once a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies with the blood of an animal. And on Yom Kippur, he would take that blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of Israel. This is what would happen between God and his people. This is what would sustain the relationship, the covenantal grace between a holy God and a wayward people, the death and sacrifice of another. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, we must remember there's Aaron's staff, there's manna from the wilderness, and then there's the Ten Commandments. The law of God that represented what Israel was called to live out, the standard by which they must live. And yet we remember that all of God's people have fallen short, that all of God's people were lawbreakers. And so this is the message of Yom Kippur. 
That God shows mercy towards his people through the sacrifice of blood. That God shows mercy towards lawbreakers. Lawbreakers such as us. By covering us with the blood of another. When Jesus is describing the mercy that God offers this tax collector. He's describing himself. He's describing himself as the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. Jesus is both the high priest and the sacrifice. And the blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat represented, it looked forward, it foreshadowed the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us on the cross. It is by Jesus' substitutionary death that the tax collector the worst of Jewish society is justified and forgiven. And friends, that same mercy is offered to us. It's offered to you. And the only thing that you need to do, the only thing that God requires of us is that we humble ourselves and recognize just how much we need Jesus just how much we need Jesus' blood to cover us and cleanse us. Friends, which are you today? Are you the Pharisee or are you the tax collector? And even though our starting points may seem very different, one from a position of power and respect and performance, another from a position of destitution, of brokenness, in shame, the pathway to God is one and the same. Our only hope is Jesus. The only way for you and I to be justified and forgiven of our sins is through the merciful work of Jesus Christ who loved you and died for you. Jesus finishes, finishes his parable with a beautiful, memorable statement. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you allow people, sinners like us, to approach you in truth, in boldness, and in confidence. And we fully understand right now that that benefit, that that access, that that privilege is afforded to us, not by our performance, not by our goodness, and not by our works, but wholly by Jesus Christ, who has loved us, lived for us in our place, and died for us on the cross. Father, I pray that Right now, you would open our eyes. You would open our eyes to see, to see the pride that is in our own hearts, to see the judgment and condemnation, to identify it as we cast that out towards others. Father, I pray if anyone here does regard themselves as superior, does regard themselves as better, as stronger, as greater, as more righteous than others. Father, would you graciously, powerfully, would you humble them 
so that they would know that their only rock to stand on is Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who are just struggling with their own brokenness, suffocating and unable to sing and to pray and to worship freely because of their own failures, their repeated addictions, their pasts that haunt them. Lord Jesus, would you give them words of life? Would you give them words of grace? Would you remind them that your mercy, that your mercy is freely available to them right now if they would but humble themselves before you and place their trust in you. Father, I pray that you would do a supernatural work of grace in each of our lives as we watch and as we worship from our homes, from our rooms, whether we are with family or by ourselves. Lord, would you allow us to taste and see that you are good. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.